October 14th, 1982, Fort Worth, Texas. A 14-year-old girl nearly dies in childbirth. This 14-year-old girl had got pregnant, not planned, obviously. But with the consent of her parents, she made the decision to pull out of school and join and finish the term at the Edna Glancy Adoption Centre in Fort Worth. In a year where roughly one in four pregnancies ended in an abortion, the decision to carry the baby to term was a courageous one for so young a teenager. But Melissa had um, been adopted, as had her biological father, so she was aware of the possibilities. At long last, she delivered a healthy baby boy after a difficult and dangerous delivery that nearly killed her. In Oklahoma, Mike and Peggy had tried for nine years to get pregnant, but were unsuccessful. Mike had slowly warmed to the idea of adoption, though he still harboured reservations as to whether he could ever really love somebody else's child as his own. So with trepidation, he agreed to work with the Edna Adoption Agency and began the long, arduous adoption process. Upon receiving a phone call that, their mother, that the mother of their child was in labour, they jumped into the car and headed to Fort Worth, butterflies in their stomachs. I was that baby. Not me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a surprise, wouldn't it? <laughs> that baby was uh, Mick Murray. He became a Christian and a pastor, and he wrote a book about the Father Heart of God, which, um, which I really recommend. Um, ask me if you want more details of that. It was really, really helpful. What I've read was obviously just an extract from it. He goes on to say that any hesitation that his dad had concerning the adoption evaporated as soon as he saw his newborn son. So much so, they went on to adopt another little girl a couple of years later. Mick and his sister became Mike and Peggy's children. Like Mick and his sister, we have been adopted. So Romans 8, verses 9 to 7, read this. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, 
The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, that we might also share in his glory. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If you're a Christian here today, you have been adopted to sonship. And that's a radical change in our status. Before, we were orphans. We were orphans in a place that knew nothing of any social welfare. We were destitute, homeless, helpless. We were unloved, alone, and without hope. But God, in his mercy and his love, out of his overwhelming goodness and his kindness, adopted us into his family. We have become children of God, co-heirs of Jesus, and, uh, and, uh, and co-heirs with Jesus of all the promises of God. And this is a permanent change. This is who we now are. And it makes a real difference. God didn't just make us children and then keep us at a distance. He delights in us and invites us into the very core of his family. Through his Holy Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. And that's a term of address that is at the same time both um, respectful, but also deeply intimate. And as the adopted children of God, we can come into the presence of the King of Kings without fear, and we can call him Father. And that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Words are too weak. It's mind-blowing, astounding, Stunning, unbelievable, you can add your own adjectives, that we would be called the children of God. And yet that is who we are. I've actually found it really difficult to prepare for this message today because I so struggle to get my head around this. I can see what the Bible says and I can accept it in my mind, but I'm just not really sure how deep these truths have penetrated into my inner being. It just seems too amazingly good to be true. I know the fact is we can't really grasp any aspect of God in, in its fullest sense, um, but there are other things that the Bible tells us about God which seem to me at least somewhat more intuitive. So think of God as creator. Everything that exists was made by God. Now, it is, of course, impossible to comprehend any being that can be that powerful. Um, did you know that apparently there are 200,000 times more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on the Earth? That's staggering, isn't it? I have no idea who thinks up these numbers, uh, <laughs> and I haven't checked it. You get the picture, though. The universe is huge, and God made it, so that is amazing. But I find that I can accept that as a fact. The problem comes when, like David, we, we consider the heavens the work of God's fingers and then ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
And the staggering answer is, yeah, he's very mindful indeed. And we'll come back to that. How else is God described? Well, in other ways, the king of kings, majestic, holy, high and lifted up. And again, that makes sense to me. If a God is capable of creating the whole universe, then he must be awesome in every sense of the word. Terrifying, unapproachable, powerful, majestic, glorious. That's how I imagine God should be or would be. But it's not the whole story. And again, we might think of God as judge. You know, even people who don't believe that God even exists still think that he is a judge. And they're right to do so. And again, it makes complete sense to me. If there is a God like the one we've been talking about, and if we've deliberately disobeyed him, then we're liable to be judged by him. That makes sense, but it isn't good news. To be found guilty of the kind of being that can create the whole universe isn't a good prospect. And yet the Bible does say that God is a judge and will judge. But again, it's not the whole story, and we'll come back to that later. So, creator, king, judge. These are all ways that God can be described. And yet, when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't instruct us to use any of these. How did he instruct us to address the almighty God? Thank you. Our Father, yeah. Now, I know that not everyone has had a good experience of earthly fathers. And the truth is that none of us have had a perfect father. And perhaps for some, this makes it difficult to imagine relating to God as father. But whatever our experience, I think that we all have some idea of what a good father should look like. A good father will love his children, and that love will be unconditional It's a love that doesn't have to be earned. It's a love that will be constant no matter the circumstance. It's a love that won't waver even when the child makes mistakes or does things that are wrong. A good father will delight in his children just for who they are. When our children were born, I was so excited. I just wanted to tell everyone. I was delighted in them even though they hadn't done anything at all. I loved them simply because they were our children. And of course, because babies are cute. (laughs) They really don't have to do anything, do they? And we're so proud of them. How many of you here who are parents videoed your child's first steps? And that's as if no other child had ever managed to do that before. A good father will provide for his children. He'll watch over them. He'll protect them. He'll guide them and instruct them and discipline them. He won't do or say things that will hurt them. He'll be faithful and dependable. He'll listen to them. He'll comfort them in their struggles. He'll encourage them and help them. He'll be patient with the child's weaknesses. He'll be generous and kind and forgiving. I could go on, but you get the picture. Wouldn't you like to have a father like that? Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. The God who is creator, king.
king and judge told us the way that this is, this is the way that he wants us to understand him, the way he wants us to relate to him as father. Now, this hasn't always been the case for any of us. And it isn't everyone that has the right to address God as father. In fact, there's only one who has the natural right to call God father, and that is Jesus, his son. No one else was born into God's family. None of us are naturally God's children. We became God's children through the process of adoption. But having been adopted, then we have the rights and privileges of natural children. This is process of adoption I just want to look at briefly now. And through it, I want to see what it tells us about the father heart of God. So if you have adopted a child, I don't know if anyone here has, or you've known someone that has, you'll know that you have to go through a grueling process. Everything about you is investigated, your private life, your finances, your beliefs, your hopes, your dreams. You'll have to fill out numerous forms and submit to, uh, and, and, and go to lots of interviews. You'll be observed and challenged, and I think sometimes probably reduced to tears. If you're going to succeed, you need to be completely committed very resilient. You've really got to know that you want to adopt a child because that's a huge cost financially, emotionally. A cost that is borne by the would-be parents. The child does nothing, pays nothing, probably at this stage knows nothing. The decision to adopt is that of the parents. The cost is borne by the parents. The child receives the benefit. And there is a parallel with us being adopted by God into his family. Now, the parallel isn't exact. In particular, we weren't innocent babies, orphaned through no fault of our own. In contrast, we were the enemies of God, who by nature deserved God's anger. And that's something I say we'll address in a moment. But there are other parallels. There's a parallel in that the decision to adopt was God's and not ours. There's a parallel in that we were unable to do anything about our helpless state, and God did everything. He bore the cost. Then there's a parallel in that the process of adoption brings about a complete change in our status, a, state, a change that lasts forever. There's a parallel in that the process of adoption is, once, is one way. Once adopted, you don't become unadopted. We have the rights and privileges of sonship forever. As adopted children, we are secure and there's a parallel that once adopted, we become part of the family of God with right to access and to, to address God as Father. So I just want to look at some of those briefly. First then, the whole process started with a God whose love was so big that he couldn't contain it. A God who desired children that he could love and who would respond in love to him. We weren't adopted because that was what we wanted. We were adopted because this is what God wanted. This was his plan. The decision to adopt was God's, not ours. It has always been his strong desire that we should become his children. The Father heart of God is so big that we read in 2 Peter 3.9 that he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, some people think that if there is a God, then he's a God who is distant, a God who doesn't care about what happens to us. But that is so far from the truth. 
God passionately loves each person here today. He loves each person that is out there. His eager desire that is everyone would be adopted into his family. And that's where everything started, in God's big heart of love. It was a desire so strong that he was willing to go through what he knew would be a long and arduous and extremely costly process to get what he wanted. When a couple decide they're going to adopt a child, they have to be prepared to commit in advance to paying the cost and then to follow through with a plan of action. And it was the same with God. God's desire to adopt wasn't some sort of wishful, dreamy thinking. It was a fixed plan that he was determined would be brought into effect, whatever the cost. And I say the cost in this case was exceptional. It was a cost that we couldn't pay, but it was a cost that God chose to pay on our behalf. Remember, we talked about judge, uh, God as judge, and he is. And it's right that he is. And I think we all know that. We, uh, I'm sure that even now, you would be able to bring to mind somebody that you think you would like to see brought before a judge um, to, to answer for the terrible things that they have done. Justice is good. And it's a good thing that God is judge. The problem is that we were all guilty and deserving of punishment. The good news is that God took that punishment on himself in the person of Jesus. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his, uh, his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. He has paid the price so that we could be adopted into his family. That's how much he loved us. And that love has brought about a radical change in our status. When we are adopted into God's family, the Bible describes that change in status in various ways. It talks sometimes of, of it like being like going from lost to being found, or from darkness to light, and perhaps most dramatically, from death to life. God's love for us is powerful and effective. So just into Romans, um, uh, just into Romans 6, we find this death to life imagery used. And Nathan has referred to these verses already. It says that if we have been united with Christ in his death, then we will be united with him in his resurrection. In verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that's the meaning of the symbol of baptism that we've just been witnessing this morning. It represents, as Nathan said, a burial. And it was so exciting to see Gopi baptised this morning. And that's what we were seeing, a visual representation of Gopi dying to sin and being raised with Christ, raised with him to a new life, a life of freedom, a life of hope, a life that has a future, the life of an adopted child of God. And this change of status from orphans to adopted children brings security. Our Heavenly Father is good. Now, really that's a useless word, isn't it? It's like saying the sun is hot or the universe is big. It doesn't even begin to describe it. God's Father heart of love is so powerful and unwavering. It is faithful and unchanging. It is patient and forgiving and gracious 
and merciful. We can't really begin to um, test the limits of his love for us. So we have complete security. Whatever our history, whatever our current circumstances, whatever else is going on in the world, but the point I particularly want to emphasize this morning is that we have complete security despite our failings and our weaknesses. You know, it is a regrettable fact that children do sometimes disobey their parents. You might have noticed. Children can hurt their parents by their words, by their actions, by their decisions. And as adopted children, we still sin. We are still disobedient. We still can grieve God. In Romans 7, we read of someone who's wrestling with the fact that they keep doing what they don't want to do. They keep doing things they know they shouldn't be doing. And this is the experience of all of us at some point in our lives. And when this happens, Satan will tempt you. He'll say, you're not worthy of God. How can you call yourself a Christian when you keep doing these things? And I just want to remind you today to call that out for the lie that it is. Just as natural children don't cease to be their parents' children when they fail or when they do things that are wrong, neither do we, as the adopted children of God, cease to be his children when we fail or do wrong. It's so important that we don't just hold this as a truth in our heads, but we allow this to get to our hearts. Our security is absolute. Jesus has already paid the price for all our sin and God's grace more than covers it all. Obviously, that's not a license to keep sinning. Why would we choose to deliberately hurt our father? Why would we choose to live the old life that we've died to? But when we do fail, we are not separated from God. We are still God's children. Romans 8 opens with these wonderful words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now and not forever. And it ends with a question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, Paul says, is nothing. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As God's adopted children, we are loved absolutely and completely, now and forever. Totally secure, totally safe. So we've been adopted and become part of God's family. I've observed in the family, we, we say and we do things that we wouldn't say or do elsewhere. We, we try things out, we take risks because we're safe. The children are free to take certain liberties with their parents that they wouldn't take elsewhere. They might come into your room in the middle of the night and expect a cuddle, or when they're older, they might call up for a lift sometime long after bedtime. <laughs> I still feel free to go to Dad's house without knocking, even though I haven't lived there for many years. There's a closeness and intimacy in family that doesn't exist elsewhere. So coming back to the passage we started, 
with. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. There is no fear in the family of God. We are free. We are safe. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. There's a closeness, an intimacy with each other, but especially with God himself. We are part of the family of God. So if you're a Christian here today, I just want to encourage you to think deeply on what it means to call God our Father, Abba Father. This morning, I particularly wanted to emphasize the security and the freedom that follows from being God's adopted children. But there is just so much more. We've, we've spoken over recent weeks about some aspects, and we'll look some more over the next few weeks. But there's such a richness here, what it means to call God our Father. And it does us good to meditate on it. And if you're not a Christian, or perhaps your image of God has been of someone powerful but distant, or perhaps you thought of God as a fearful judge, best to be avoided. And if so, I hope this morning you've had just a little bit of a glimpse of the goodness and the love of God. Perhaps you've even thought that maybe you would like a father like that. And if so, I just want to finish by saying the father's arms are open wide. He eagerly desires to adopt you into his family. He's done everything. He just invites you to come.